Real John Baker here on uh, Too Lazy to Write, the podcast that I thank you all for listening to. Um, so who do I talk to today? What's going on today? Well, what's going on? Here, I'm going to tell you. My son's been back home from camp for two weeks. My daughter's still at camp in Canada. Uh, we're in full bar mitzvah mode, happening in a little over a month. It'll actually be a month, uh, what's today? Tuesday, Thursday. It'll be one month on Thursday. And I have an interview for you today. Who am I talking to? Well, I uh, I don't know if you can hear that in the background, by the way. The lawnmower guys are lawnmowering my neighborhood, and it's really loud. Um, so I apologize if you can hear that, but uh, enough about that. Um, my guest today is a woman by the name of Shelley Sherman. Shelley has spent a life in radio. And for those of you who've listened to this podcast before, you know how much I love talking to people in radio or talking about radio. Um, it's all you hear. Radio Gaga. Radio Gugu. <laughs> I talk about the spirit of radio. Um, can't think of any more. So Shelly uh, spoke to me from her home in Michigan. And at the tender age of 15 years old, Shelly was uh, the first woman, I believe, actually on her high school radio station, if I'm not mistaken. If I am, then I apologize. Uh, 15 years old, she was on WSHJ, Southfield High School's radio station. Two years later, at the age of 17, she got her first professional gig at WBRB, playing old school crooners like Andy Williams, Ed Ames, and Perry Como. She has then been on a whole bunch of different radio stations. Uh, we talk about screwing up call letters and if she ever did that, which that's an interesting story. Actually, she spent more time in the car, I think, than she might have on the air when she was talking about that. Anyway, um, but why did I talk to her primarily? Well, first of all, it turned out it was a great interview and she was wonderful to talk to. Uh, we talked about family. We talked about friends. We talked about inviting strangers for dinner, etc., etc., etc. And we talked about her time on The Voice of Peace. For those of you who don't know, uh, the Voice of Peace was, uh, still is, it's on, it's online now, uh, thevoiceofpeace.co.il, but The Voice of Peace was a radio station that broadcast from somewhere in the Mediterranean. It was on a boat, um, somewhere in the Mediterranean, off the coast of Tel Aviv. I've kind of spoiled that part of the show right now, but she'll talk more about it. Um, and uh, it was a pirate radio station. Um, one that, like I said, if you were in Israel in the last 30 years, you would have heard the radio station, the voice of peace. Um, I don't know. And as a bit of a, you know, as a radio lover, it was always, I don't know. There's a certain sentimentality I have about that radio station. I would listen to it late at night. Um, it kept me company, uh, as radio does. And, uh, for that, I'm grateful for, to it and for it. And, um, anyway, I hope you enjoy it. It's my interview I did with Shelly Sherman from her home in uh, in Michigan, and we had a nice chat and enjoy. And then we'll come back in a few minutes, and I'll uh, you know wrap it up. Uh, so put your headphones on. Listen if you're driving. Put the car in cruise control. If you're on an airplane, put the uh, what do you call those things that you put on your eyes? Yeah, the eye mask. Put that down and uh, enjoy the soothing sounds of uh, Shelly and I. Talk to you soon. Yep, that's something I used to always tell myself when I was in radio. I mean, even when I started out, I was just turned 15, and we had a high school radio station. So it was a bunch of guys and me. <laughs> so uh -huh. we would always say, nobody's listening. It doesn't matter what you do. Yeah. Of course, sometimes they'd get too far-fetched, and then the teacher would, would step in. 
but That's, even when I worked at like bigger radio stations, I, I didn't realize so many people were listening. Well, it's funny. I worked at, um, I went to college, and we had a 20-watt radio station. Okay. That's like, and, like most of the college stations around here that start the same. Yeah, so nothing, nothing huge, but our, our teacher told us, you know, and I always believe that every time you turn the mic on, imagine that, you know, thousands are listening. And, oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, and it kind of, and that, were you ever told to smile when you were talking? Oh, sure. I'm smiling right now, <laughs> but I'm a smiley person. <laughs> yeah, smile and stand, right? We always <laughs> told to stand, but I, I ended up, whereas you ended up on the air, I ended up writing commercials for 12 years. I think that would be so much fun to write commercials. Uh, well, it was at the beginning. Um, and then somebody pointed out to me that uh, after 9-11, and I don't know if this is just a coincidence or not, but after 9-11, the, the tone of commercials changed more from, you know, this like great creative outlet to more one-on-one, -on -one, like I'm the owner and I really want you to come in and, you know, buy my car or eat at my restaurant. And it kind of, it took a turn that way and I didn't see it returning. I don't know if that was a lie or not. No, that's interesting because, well, I mean, so many things were affected by 9-11, but I guess the more somber mood of the country that we weren't as willing maybe to tolerate some of the inane or silliness that we might right. have seen. Right, it's possible. I had a friend, um, her husband wrote the greatest commercial for the Detroit Zoo, which was the animals talking okay. to invite people to come to the zoo. And um, so I know, I just always thought that that would be such a fun thing to do for creativity. What was your favorite commercial that you ever worked on? Oh, for me, oh, I, um, I got so pissed off once at a sales rep because she just was so demanding and, and it just aggravated me to no end that I wrote this ridiculous commercial for a restaurant with had, it had a soldier dying on the battlefield and, uh, and you know, all he wanted from his, his troop commander was to hear about the special at Al's diner before he died. <laughs> and I it had like, been pre nine 11, not post. Oh yeah. It was, it was definitely pre anyway. I thought this is ridiculous. She showed it to the client and from there on in, we went with this, these just outlandish commercials for this guy. So they were so much fun, but it was kind of like I was cursed by my own creativity. Because <laughs> after a while you felt a little blasphemous, right? I didn't want to yeah. make this hero, you know, the, the chili dog special. Yeah, exactly. Come on in for our, you know, 495 breakfast. My husband is a funeral director oh. and he previously used to live in Arizona. So people in Michigan are, are a little more staid, but in Arizona, um, especially, you know, 30 years ago, it was a little wilder and crazy. So they would sponsor a golf outing, and they'd mention the name of the funeral home, and then they would say, there's one in every hole. <laughs> Couldn't get away with that today. <laughs> no, no. I actually, this, I like, because I kind of have, a, you know, a bit of a morbid sense of humor, and there was a man who worked at the radio station who he was on contract with the funeral home to do their ads, and uh, then he died. And I always thought that it would have been so fitting had he recorded one saying, well, I'm dead now, and I've got to tell you, the, the treatment I got. <laughs> See, that, now that's the kind of thing my husband would appreciate that so much. But being a funeral director for so many years, so you develop that kind of you know, morbid 
humor, the same thing like doctors do at hospitals right. or anybody in any particular business. Right. You know, does, now, you're 703. Where are you calling from? Uh, so I'm in Northern Virginia, but we moved here three years ago from Canada. Oh, and from, where in Canada did you live? Uh, Ottawa. Okay. I think that we had started to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So you, you had family in Montreal, right? Right. And I had, a, I think our cousin Zach lived in Ottawa. The last name was Miroff. Wait, Miroff. I think I knew Miroff. Well, my mother might. I'm going to ask her. What was your mother's maiden name? Her maiden name. So she was from, I think I told you, uh, her maiden name was Polanski. Okay. And her, her uh, mother's maiden name was Rappaport. Oh, now did I tell you the story that I heard about Rappaport? No. So we were in Porto, Portugal two years ago. And we went to visit the synagogue there, which is very lovely. And like every synagogue in Europe, unfortunately, is, you know, locked and guarded. Right. And, um, but they told us that during the Spanish Inquisition, that when the Jews would flee Spain, that even if they were not allowed to settle in Portugal, that Portugal gave them safe passage. Okay. And what they would say is, I was sent from the rabbi from or the rabbi from Porta. So oh. Rabbi Port, Rabbi Port. That's so interesting. And I know finding family history is so fascinating. Like I know on my children's, their father's side, that they trace their heritage, you know, like from Israel to Spain to Italy and then back to Israel again. Really? So wow. It would be so cool for you if you knew where the line of the Rappaport line came from. Well, I know my. My great uncle, uh, who's passed away a number of years ago, but he wrote a book um, tracing that uh, called Echoes of Druria. It was like I think it was a self-published book, basically. Um, but he he traced the whole lineage. But I never read the book. I have the book sitting in my house. But I'll read it. What was it? Echoes of what? Druria. D r d r y u a maybe Druria, which is where his family came from, which would have been my grandmother's family. Okay, and was it? What um, country was Brewer in? I'm going to say Russia. Okay. Yeah, my my bubby on my my father's mother, she always said she was from a, a place called White Russia. Which yeah, Belarus. Was, sure. Is that my oh, bubby okay. too? It actually, still exists Belarus. Oh, I mean, they, yeah, of they course. call it like we would call you know, part of America the South, right? So like the South is not right. just a state, but um, they still have a part they call White Russia or you know the Pale of the Settlement. Yeah, so that's where she was from. But she left when I think she was two, maybe two or three, and moved to Canada. So my bubby also came from um, Belarus, from a little town called David Horodok, which was outside of a larger town called Stone. And um, they came in through Windsor. Wow. And then eventually settled in Detroit. That's so interesting. Through Windsor, wow. Right, I guess there was... Um, there, there must have been some Jews that were already settled there. They were able to send for them um, and, you know, have jobs prepared. And I remember yeah. my Bubby's older brother came, and then one after another, they were able to come. And a Holocaust survivor, my um, buddy's father, told us the story that there was a priest in Windsor that sent for him to come when he was in the DP camps after the Holocaust. Oh, my goodness. You know, how, how much that meant to him. So as he became successful in business and would help Jewish businesses, he would also always help 
um, you know, charities connected to this man's religion because it was so, you know, it saved him. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting. We like to give back, don't we, us Jews? We, we love to play Jewish geography. You know, yeah, we, we like do. see how we're all connected. The, the rabbi here, um, so we go to a Chabad here, uh, and uh, the rabbi here likes to call that bageling. Bageling, yes. That's what my husband calls it, bageling. Oh, too. really? Oh, okay. So it's known. Okay, yeah. And I told another rabbi about it, and he was like, what's that? I said, you know, it's like if you're at Trader Joe's or a grocery store, and you see someone's got a challah in their cart. Yep. All of a sudden, you want to know that person. Or when we see, like my husband, he wears a kippah almost full time. So if we're out in public, we see somebody else with a kippah, especially when we're traveling, we give the nod. Yeah, exactly. And like my daughter used to drive a Jeep Wrangler. And I guess Jeep Wrangler folks, when they pass each other, they, oh. they have a sign that they give each other. Okay. You know, it's like, like casual two fingers up from the steering wheel. Like school bus drivers, right? They all nod at each other. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I like that. I like that idea. I did read something the other day that because I've always wondered, like, why do I always feel such a strong need to identify, you know, my identity? Right? Right. It's not that people need to love the fact that I'm Jewish, but I do. I really like to connect with people. And somebody said that it feels Jews may feel that way because our place in the world has always been so temporary. I mean, our, our ultimate place in the world is permanent, but our right the moment of the country that we're living in. And so we want to make our mark. We want to say, I'm here. And I know like for us, we're always conscious that somebody knows that we're Jewish or when we do a good deed to a stranger to let them know this was done for you by someone that was Jewish because we want them to know that we're inherently good people. Right. And not, not believe all the bad rumors and all the bad press. No, no it's, it's so funny you say that because, um, and I want to I want to talk about your Israel experience, and I just um, but so I was on a kibbutz for a year, and which kibbutz? Keturah. Okay, where's that? It's uh, south. It's about a half an hour north of Eilat, right near okay. Yotvata. Okay. Which everybody knows the milk producing uh, kibbutz, but <laughs> but so I was there, and I kind of I I didn't understand it at first, but the whole you know well. You know, someone would invite you over for cake, and you wouldn't show up. And they'd be like, "Why didn't you show up? I invited you." Like, well, you know, it wasn't really formal. It was like that whole North American, like, you know, standoffish. I need like the formal thing, right? Um, and then it took me a while, but I finally got used to it. Like, if someone says "drop by," they genuinely mean "drop by," right? Not like in America, oh, we must get together sometime, right? And then it it doesn't really happen, right? But like in Israel, I always found it was you know, you must come by, and you do. So anyway, long story short, um, one day in Ottawa, the doorbell rang, and it was this Israeli kid, like, trying to sell art. And it started to rain as I was talking to him, and he noticed my mezuzah, and I didn't want him walking in the rain, and we were having dinner, so I invited him in, I gave him dinner and all of that. I love that. And, And I was telling my coworker about it the next day, and she was like, well, I don't understand, didn't even know the guy. He's like, yeah, but like he was Jewish, he was Israeli, and like I kind of knew him. She's like, you didn't know him. I'm like, it didn't matter. Right. We had something in common. Right, right. You know, and I gave it him a hamburger. Could have been Big my deal. kid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I want to talk about your experience in Israel and on that um, that shift that I'm assuming was just a, a an amazing time. It was. 
it was a great experience. It was definitely at the time I remember saying to myself, if nothing else, this will be a story I can tell my grandchildren one day. Right. And they actually did um, an article about me in Le Isha, which was the woman's magazine at the time. Okay. So I'm going to see if I – I think I have it downloaded on one of the computers. I'll see if I can send that. Yeah, for see. sure. So I just, want to, I just want to go back. So this is the Voice of Peace from somewhere in the Mediterranean. And when were you on the boat? So I went on the boat. Um, my, my bubby and I went to Israel in January of 1983. Okay. And she, all my life, told me she was going to take me to Israel. Like we used to have a little bank account. She put money in it for me. I'd put a little money in now and then. And so I turned 21 December 27th, and a week later she took me to Israel. And I had been working as a DJ at 105 FM in Flint, um, WWCK, which was uh, a great radio station and also an interesting story. It, um, they won their Arbitron's best station in a medium market, so everybody got that Golden Mike Award. Okay. So, And there's actually a film that one of the guys there produced about it recently, so I can always tell you about that later if you want to, but you don't know about the voice of peace. <laughs> so um, you know, so I, I took a leave of absence. Like I had given up my apartment, and uh, I was between – I didn't go to school for that semester, and I took a leave of absence from work. And when I was in Israel – my one of my Bubby's cousins knew Abi Natan, who was okay. the man who had started the Voice of Peace, right. and he has a fascinating backstory as well. And there's also oh. a, a little video film out about him. Yeah, I saw that. That one I think is on Vimeo. I, I think I, I watched it there. Yes. Yeah. I did yeah. Too. That was super interesting. Yeah, he was really he was a fascinating guy, uh, but he was very driven. And so I didn't really have like much of an interaction with him. What had happened was uh, my cousin spoke to him and said, well, you know, she's a DJ, and so she'd like to work on radio in Israel. And the only thing at the time in Israel was uh, Rashid Aleph, Rashid Bet, and Rashid Gimel, and Gleitzal. So that was it, you know, the four government mm-hmm. radio stations. Right. And so I remember we called him up from the flat we were staying at, and he said to me, you know, but it's on a boat, and it's winter, and it's the water – it was February, aren't you afraid? And I, thinking that I'm so sassy, said yeah. to him, A.B., if the Jewish people were afraid, we wouldn't have an Israel. <laughs> you know, Chris, now looking back at that 35 years later, she's what a cheeky, insolent thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> so he agreed to come and let me try because it was all um, British men that were manning the ship. Okay. Uh, except, I think, for the cook and the and the captain who was Dutch, because it was an old Dutch vessel that the ship okay. was. And I remember that we went to port and we were waiting for the small boat that would take us out to the Voice of Peace. And it was the first time in my life that I had hummus, because I oh. was still new to Israel. Okay. I never had hummus before. And, you know, I learned how to leap negev, wipe up a <laughs> plate of hummus, and then they take you on the small boat, and it's very choppy. And so that, that hummus taste remained with me for days afterwards. <laughs> and what A.B. had done was he had, like, all the guys slept kind of in a dorm room style, and he had a bunk for me that was on the opposite end of the ship, um, which was very nice. And unfortunately, the ship had gotten wet at some point in time, so the mattress was wet and the walls were wet, and... After a couple of weeks, I saw bugs coming in. So that that was the end. That was the end of my experience there. But while I was on there, uh-huh. what was really cool was the fact that 
one, you know, you know that you're on a pirate radio station. So that in and of itself has some a lot of mystique. Right. And the fact that it's a great simplified format. You know, you play something from the 40s, from the 50s, from the 60s, the 70s, and something current. You know, so that was the whole format. So you had a range of, you know, you could pick from 500 songs that, from the right. 50s, anyone you wanted to play. And he also had some lovely, some really lovely traditions that he did on the boat was that, and they still do that. And do you know the, did you know the Voice of Peace is now on the Internet? Yeah, I, well, I only found that out after researching you and, and looking for information about it, because I, I know they did they sunk the ship, right? Right. They, yeah, the ship was scuttled, I think, a dozen years ago. Okay. But definitely, I know that's in the Vimeo movie, I think, about 80, because it, it shows his... You know, it shows like his last broadcast that he gave before they scuttled the ship. Yeah. And he had certain things that he would read. Um, Desiderata, he'll go, go placidly among the noise and haste, you know, and know what beauty there lies in silence. And so that was something they would play every day. And then every day at sunset, at twilight, he would play the song Twilight Time. And sure. there was a story that he he played... He always recognized Twilight Time because he had had like a love of his life that was, you know, not meant to be, and so he always played that in her memory. That was the romantic story that went around the ship. Oh my gosh, that's funny because I I do remember like the first time I went to Israel was in '87, and that's when I first discovered the Voice of Peace, and I remember the song Twilight Time. Um, the platters, right? I think it was the platters. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and was it? Didn't that like lead into a show that was sort of all like right, sort of that romantic Frank Sinatra kind of music? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Still, it's still on. It actually, it usually comes on my shows on Thursdays at eight o'clock in Israel. Okay. And so usually, um, Andy Cox does the show right before me, and he does Twilight Time because Twilight Time would always be seven or seven thirty. Okay. Even if Twilight Time was going to be a different time of day, they had it set up at a certain time. And that's lived on. Right, and that's lived on. You know, I guess they've tried to keep it as close to the original as possible. Okay. There have been, over the years, you know, a couple of different people that have tried to create their own voice of peace. Um, and I, there might be another version of it out there somewhere, but this one was considered to be the original. That um, Yaniv Dayan. Yeah, that's his name, Yaniv Dayan, the gentleman who runs it now. So I believe that he was in touch with Abi Natan's son. Okay. And that's how the mantle was handed over to him. Oh, okay. And like you said, it was a pirate radio station, so there was some kind of, like, I don't want to say danger, but like, like a romantic danger about it, maybe. Right. Like the Israeli government, they kind of gave a wink and a nod. Because Abi Natan was um, was a very famous figure, you know, in, in Tel Aviv he had a restaurant. You know, he was known for having landed his plane in Egypt, thinking right. he was going to make peace for Israel. A very bold guy, and so they really looked the other way. And we were anchored about a mile and a half off the coast of Tel Aviv, right okay. off the beach. You could see the boat from the beach. And I remember one time the Israeli Navy boat coming around close to where we were, and one of the guys tossed me an orange, 
and in the orange he had made a little cut and inside he had put a note, which I took out, but nobody on the ship could read Hebrew, and at the time I couldn't read and understand Hebrew at the same time. Okay. <laughs> um, and before I ever had a chance to have that note translated, it was it was just gone. It was disintegrated. You have no yeah. idea what, what... He might have just been asking for a request. He might have been asking for a request, right? You know, um, Israeli soldiers are all adorable. Yeah. You know, I and I was 21 years old back then, so... It was, it was all. It was very, very cute. But um, I was amazed at how many people listened to it. I actually recently, um, until last year, my daughter was living in Seattle for a couple of years, and when I was there, I met one of her coworkers who was from South Africa, and she said to me, "Growing up, she would listen to the Voice of Peace." And the interesting thing about the Voice of Peace was that all of the countries around Israel that it reached, a great majority of them, you couldn't play rock and roll music. You know, you just you couldn't play that kind of music because right. they they were a little sequestered. Um, I was thrilled. I, th- I think I was the first person who was able to play Bob Seger in the Middle East. Really? <laughs> yes. So that was that was a big big thing for me. I always thought if I ever meet Bob Seger, that's the story I'm going to tell him. Sure. Local we went to guy, see him right? a couple weeks ago at uh, one of our concert places. Okay. So I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say the only concert I've ever seen in Detroit was, um, or was that a, a ski? You'll know the name of it. It's like a ski resort that has um, concerts. Oh, Pine Knob. Yeah, Pine Knob. Right, right, which is so that's where we saw Seeger a couple of weeks ago. Okay. Uh, they now call the Detroit Energy, uh, the DTE Energy Theater. Okay. But everybody, if you're you know if you're my age or older, we still call it Pine Knob. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I had a friend, uh, my my university roommate lived in Windsor, so we I went to visit him one summer, and we ended up at uh, like the Detroit Blues Festival and B.B. King and the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Those are the only two I remember. So you saw B.B. King at Pine Up? Yeah. So, because we, we were there, this was about 15 years ago when we saw B.B. King, because my husband and I had just married. Oh, okay. No, this for me was, God, in the ni- early 90s, maybe? Yeah, B.B. King was already, by the time we saw him, he still had Lucille with him, but he was doing more talking than singing and playing. Yeah, that, yeah, that was, I, the last time I saw him in Ottawa, it was like the band came out and then he would come out for a few minutes and play and then the band did the majority of the work. Who was your roommate that lived in Windsor? Uh, so his last name is Fink, and his father, I believe, was an optometrist in Detroit. Okay. Yeah, until he passed away. But yeah, he would go back and forth every day. Oh, from Windsor to Detroit, right? Which a lot of the Jewish families you know, do that if they have their businesses here. Yeah, yeah. And he took us to a really good Chinese food place in Windsor, but I cannot again remember the name of that place. <laughs> a long time ago. So yeah, it's so nice to hear everybody that everyone has the connections and the, yeah. and the good memories. It's nice yeah. to have a good Detroit memory. Detroit's a great city for rock and roll. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't want to harp on this ship thing, but I just, I got to tell you, um, do you know anything about the history of the logo? Oh, well, this is what I had heard, was that when A.B. Natan was going around getting funding for the ship, that he somehow had the opportunity to meet with and talk to John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Oh, okay. And the story is that they signed several posters, and that these posters were able to be sold then to raise money for the boat. Okay. 
I and I think there's I think that they might make mention of that in the movie about the voice of peace also. Because I think there's two different movies. There's one about the voice of peace, and then, the, then there's one about A.B. Natan. Yeah. I think they're both Vimeo-type movies. Okay, I think I only saw, <clears throat> excuse me, the one about A.B. Natan, because I might have watched it at work. but. <laughs> okay, yeah, and then the one about the voice of peace, which has like a lot of pictures of the ship. Um, it was, you know, nice because you only had really one shift a day that you would cover. Okay. And so when you did that and you were in, you know, down in the main center part of the ship, it set up obviously, you know, just like a radio station. Right. So it was very it was very comfortable. It was just a very very comfortable place to work. There wasn't there wasn't a lot of pressure. Because it and, wasn't like other radio stations where you might be and they have a sales staff, right. and they have a programming director and a music director, and everything has to be very serious, and you have to have commercials at a certain time, and yeah. so this had a much more relaxed feeling to it. So when you were not working, what like would you go back into Tel Aviv at all, or or were you stationed like were you on the ship the whole time? I was on the ship the whole time. I was on the ship for three weeks. And, and what would you do when you um, when you weren't working? Would do a lot of reading. I've always been an avid reader. Okay. Um, and I would write letters because sure. that's how we communicated with everybody yeah. back then. Um, a lot of sunbathing, you know, up on top deck. Yeah. And then um, there were a couple of times at night that every night there had to be somebody that stayed up in like the crow's nest okay. that would give watch. But it wasn't like a rickety little basket that you'd see on an old pirate uh, ship. It was, right. you know, like a comfortable room that you were able able to look out. That was the kind of thing um, that somebody had to do and stay up all night. So um, they had, and they had a cook on the ship who yeah. cooked for everybody. And there was a rack room. And time just, time just really flew. I guess now looking back on it, I wish I had made more mental notes. Right. Well, it's always that way. You don't, what, you don't realize, you know, that you're in the good old days when you're in the good old days. Right. I try to think of that now because I know like how happy life is now. I say, you know, really cherish every day because 10 years from now, life isn't going to be the same. Right. Um, but living in Israel overall was so exciting. You know, I mean, the first month I was just there as a tourist. But, you know, as a young person, you meet so many people. All you have to know is one person. And yeah. they introduce you to somebody and somebody else. And as soon as I got off the ship, um, my girlfriend was dating a young man who was living in Detroit from Israel. And they gave me the phone number of his best friend. So I went out with him a couple of times before I got on the ship. And when I actually have a letter that he wrote me while I was on the ship, I should see if I could find that. And if there are any parts that aren't too personal, I could I could read them <laughs> about the reaction. Because one of the things I remember him telling me is that he said, everybody is talking about the female DJ on The Voice of Peace. Wow. Because I think I was the second woman to have ever worked on the ship Wow. at the time. And so when I got off the ship... Uh, he had given me his mother's address, and I went and I knocked on her door. And just like you're talking about the young man that you gave him the hamburger, yeah, she knew who I was. She was expe- it wasn't expecting me. She didn't know I was going to show up in the middle of the day. But I sat down. And the next thing I know, I had a steak and yeah. uh, French fries in front of me. Yeah, and I was like amazed. This woman doesn't know me from Eve, and she made me a steak and French fries. Yeah, it's crazy. And but she's just the loveliest woman. It's it's just wonderful that you can do that. You know mm-hmm. that. You can just have this, you know, strange connection with somebody 
over a country or over a religion or over, you know, you saw a challah in their uh, shopping cart. Well, that was actually a conversation I had a couple of months ago with um, Peter C., who used to be my boss at 105 in Flint, and he was a well-known figure there. And he now lives in California. He was writing an article about socialism. And he said, what's your opinion on socialism? I said, socialism always leads to communism, which leads to death camps. He said, well, why did it work in Israel? I said, well, you know, the kibbutz style, it was Zionism, which is what made it different. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a love for the country. We all had a mutual goal. We all had nothing, you know, everyone, I say we, I mean, I wasn't obviously a pioneer back in the 30s or the 20s, but everyone had a common goal where they had nothing, what they had they shared, and they were striving for independence and the recreation of the Jewish homeland. Mm -hmm. So that's what makes it work. You know, if you have a society where everybody has their hand out, what can you do for me? Then everything gets totally screwed. And even in Israel, eventually, the lifestyle of the kibbutz went the other way. And, you know, Israel is like a modern capitalist democracy. Yeah, yeah. And a thriving one, thank God. Yeah, yeah. I I do want to get back my... My kids want to go. My daughter's 15 and my son's... Well, he's having his bar mitzvah next month and they want to go that's so exciting yeah Yeah, we're sort of like waist deep in the planning and execution of everything (laughs) so you know for kids that there's a bar mitzvah trip but the bar mitzvah boy goes for free oh if the rest of the family comes with him and even at, at your daughter's age there's a multitude of um summer programs and trips that they like my son a couple of years ago, he was the international president of NCSY, the National Council sure. of Synagogue Youth, yeah. um, which he loved it so much because, like, I know that like you go with Chabad, but I figure you're probably a little more like we are. Like, we're not extremely religious; right. we're somewhat observant. Yeah, I always say we're like conservative, conservadox. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but then we're very lax in some things. Yeah. Um, but I have one son that became a rabbi, and my other son right now is studying at Hadar in New York, which is oh. uh, a Talmud institution. Okay. So, and and so he loved NCSY, so he went, and, I mean, the kids had been back and forth to Israel their whole entire life right. because their father is Israeli and their grandparents lived there. But um, you can definitely find a trip that will, you know, subsidize your son one time, will subsidize your daughter another time. Yeah. And I'm waiting until they come around with a, a you know, older people like us, because my <laughs> husband now, my current husband's actually never been to Israel, but oh. we're hoping we're hoping soon to be able to take um, several months to go there because my my older son, who's the rabbi, he's getting his doctorate at Yale right now in Talmud, oh. and he was offered a fellowship at Tel Aviv University um, for this for this coming school year, but he he asked to push it off to the next year because his wife who graduated, it was graduating right now from Yale, um, she was offered a fellowship at uh, Harvard, so they're going to move to Boston and okay. be there for a while. But there's there's so many programs, right? Like the, even when the kids get a little bit older, the kids are still too young for it, but you know about birthright. Sure, for sure. Like that. Yeah, actually, my younger brother was a, a madrich on birthright um, in the early years, and at the time, he was probably in his mid to late 20s, and he came home exhausted. He's like, I can't do this. Like, I'm not 18. I just can't do it. I know. Like my my youngest son is 22, and he was in Madrid this summer for one of the 10-day trips. 
and he was like, Ema, time flew by so quickly. Yeah. So it was like I, I had, I got to see Saba for like a couple of hours. That was it. And so, oh. you know, they always want to go back because they have such a connection. Sure, sure. And where do they live? Um, where in Israel is it? So his, his grandmother, unfortunately, she just passed away. She was such an amazing, amazing woman. Her whole life story is just amazing. Um, so they live in Ramat Gan, and then he has aunts in Ashkelon and an uncle in Rishon Lezion, and but his grandmother's family come from Moshav Migdal, which is near Tveria, and okay. they're right across from the Kinneret. Oh. And his, their father, my ex-husband, on his passport it says Tzfardi Tahor, because they he's recognized as pure Tzfard, and oh. he is tenth generation that was born in Israel, and so his grandfather. Um, farm, you know, Migdal was a moshav, so he did a lot of farming, and his his grandmother gave birth to sixteen children. Oh my! And one of my favorite family stories is she was pregnant with her. She gave birth to her tenth child, uh-huh. and this is Safta Miriam, and she received a letter from Ben Gurion thanking her, you know, for adding to the population <laughs> of the state of Israel because it was still. Israel's young country at the time, yeah. and sent her a hundred shekels, and so she oh. wanted to buy a washing machine. I mean, she had ten children and no washing machine. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so her husband Saba Michel said to her, "I need to buy string for the tomato crops. Let me use a hundred shekels to buy string for the tomato crops, and when the crop comes in, I'll buy you the washing machine." Okay. And so that's how the story went. So did she get her washing machine? So she got her washing machine <laughs> after the crop of the tomatoes. Okay, the tomatoes paid for the washing machine. That's fantastic. You're right. <laughs> and uh, and my my mother in law would always tell my kids that you know when things get handed down that their family will get that letter because that letter is so cool. I'm actually going to ask my kids to take a picture of it next time they're there. That is really neat. That is. I, I, I'm curious. Um, what drove you to get into radio? Because everybody I, I think has a similar story, but everyone also has a different story. I remember when when I was a kid. I mean, I remember like being really little and having one of those um, phonographs that bundled up like a suitcase and you could take it from place to yeah, place. Sure. And having all the Disney records, which I wish I had those now. Sure. Because half of them were 78s. Yeah. And I you know, remember that it was always, when you showed up with music, um, suddenly you had a common interest with everybody. Yeah. And I don't think that that's what I thought, you know, when I was six or seven years old. But when I turned 11... My uncle bought me Elton John's Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. Okay. And was really being introduced to a whole different kind of music. And then I, you know, you get to that age where 11, 12 kids are listening to the radio. And uh, WDRQ, they had a giveaway of tickets to the Rock and Roll Revival concert. And so my uncle took me and one of my friends, and we saw Ike and Tina Turner. And we saw Chubby Checker and... um, probably the platters, you know, like a few other acts. Yeah. And it was just it, it fascinated. You know, it's like when I took my son when he was little to the circus and that he was eating something and the circus started and he just sat there open mouth for an hour. Sure. You can't believe what you're seeing in front of you. Yeah. So music just has a way, as we all know, of really getting into our soul and into our brain. And I think I see a lot of life through the lens of music. You know, there's my husband and I, we take the dog for a walk every single night. And there's uh-huh. at least two or three things that I'll see. And I'll say, oh, that reminds me of this song or that song. Or 
my neighbor said, oh, be careful, I think there's a snake there in that grass. And I said, oh, do you know that song, you know, by um, uh, by Billy Paul, Grandma's Hand? Not Billy Paul, Billy... I don't know. The Grandma's Hand, Bill Withers. You know, somebody Bill oh. Withers, gra- Grandma's Hands. Okay. And that's a line, you know, from the song. So um, when I was in high school, I found out that we had a radio station. And, you know, I went in there and... There's, I mean, you know, probably you felt the same way. The first time you walk into a radio station, there's kind of an allure. There's albums everywhere, and there's microphones, and there's a transmitter with flashing lights, and there's studios. It was a pretty professional setup, you know, for for a high school. Yeah. And it was um, the end of ninth grade. And so I was in fourteen. And you knew right away. I knew right away, and I I see had. Yeah, I had a good, always had a good grasp of the English language, so yeah. my pronunciation was always good. And I think the teacher liked that because most of the DJs that were on the air were boys who flirt, teenage boys, and who kind of stirred. Yeah. yeah. Um, and but they did, they produced a lot of big people. There were two, I think Doug Banks and I think Howard Stern. See, now I'm not 100% certain. Doug Banks for sure was at that radio station in high school. That's how okay. he came out of that high school. And and it was great, and I think that I learned so much because you know I was able to go up in the ranks from you know first doing just like rip and read news and to having my own radio show to being the one that programmed um, you know who would be on the air from which hours and meeting with the companies that would send us you know the God Squad the music the programs that you'd play early on a Sunday morning yeah absolutely yeah. <laughs> and that was fun it was fun being able to interview people. Yeah, and um, one of my very best friends, he formerly he was a curator at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and he started working for them when they first opened up. And so we went to high school together, and we were on the radio station together. And he is the one that taught me. He said, "Always read the back of the albums. Always read the liner notes because it's, you get a lot of information from it." Okay. See, so, yeah, I think kids today they miss out by not actually yeah. having that vinyl to hold in their hand. No, I know. My, it's funny. My daughter, um, she recently just started to love vinyl. So we've gone back to Ottawa a few times, and there's a record store that she just has to go to. And we, you know, I end up spending hundreds on vinyl that I probably owned at one point in my life and got rid of. That's so funny. I just like sold 75 of my albums for like $2 each. But I have like hundreds of albums here. What kind of music does she like? I'll send her one. Well, it's funny. So she, I mean, she likes new stuff, um, but then she always likes it when I go onto Apple Play and put on 80s rock. She, she gets a kick out of that. Um, and we, my wife and I would drag them to concerts, and I think it paid off. Like, they both, my son plays bass and drums, and uh, my daughter is in the chorus, and she plays guitar. So oh, I think that's our, cool. Yeah, like I think I was nudging them. Like I think my daughter was eight, and we took her to see Leonard Cohen. So. Wow, Leonard Cohen. That was been a sight to see. Yeah, so it was either, I think I, I wrote like on Facebook, either I'm a great parent or like I'm causing years of damage to my kids. <laughs> but it was great because it was it was actually weird. It was, we saw him, my wife and I saw him a few years before that in like um, a theater setting, and it was it was great. 
the next time he played at a hockey arena and it was so strange, you know, it was such a huge venue. It was sold out, but it was just like, it didn't have that intimacy of, of the theater that, you know, we wanted, but it was still Leonard. So it was, it was good. Right. There's always been a big difference when you see somebody at uh, a stadium versus when you see them at one of the smaller theaters. Yeah. Yeah. Like I've never enjoyed comedy in a theater, like in a, stadium setting how about carly simon does she like carly simon um she could i don't i don't know if she's even ever heard carly simon okay i think i mean every young girl she's one that's 15 right yeah i think the album that came out you know when i was 15 it was carly simon carol king roberta flack yeah i even have an album here from the partridge family oh um uh, yes, if you want to, if you'll give me your address, I'm going to send her that an I album, will. as long as she likes vinyl. And if she likes it, great. If she doesn't like it, I totally understand. But, you know, it's fun. I still have, I have every single Barbara Streisand album, thanks to my mother. Okay. <laughs> and, and of course, some of my Bubby's albums, like The Yiddish Are Coming. Oh, no, wait, is that a, that's a comedy album, I'm guessing, right? Let's see. I've actually never listened to it. Oh. It is still in plastic. It's been open, but still in plastic. Uh, what is it? Lulia Colby. Oh, I have to get my glasses to read the rest of it. Yeah, but it, it looks like it is styled to be comedy. Have you have you heard it before? I think I've heard of that one. It's entirely possible that my bubby owned it too. <laughs> oh, your bubbies. But I could tell you, my dad owned uh, the Alan Sherman albums. Which... Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so funny you should mention it because I one of these um, Facebook sites, it's called, does he call it the Yiddish are coming? I'll send you the link. It's Yiddish humor. And so he put up some cuts from the um, Alan Sherman album. Like, hello, mother. Hello, sure. father. And then sure. something was a spoof on Jimmy Crack Corn. Oh, I don't remember that one. It's funny because when you hear it, because I sent it to my brother. So, of course, you know, my parents played it when we were growing up in the 60s. And as soon as you hear it, you know, you know it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is all a sketch. It's all sketch comedy. Yeah, my my father is now he's he's in the hospital. He's had some health issues, but he always seems to light up when uh, when he hears some Alan Sherman. Oh, see, that's nice. That's so nice. Yeah, and I guess it's like for us, right? You hear certain music, and it brings back such sensations and such memory. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does. I always hope that when I'm playing something for my kids, they'll later on, you know, 10, 15 years down the road when they're in life, they'll hear it and they'll think, oh, yeah, my dad played that for me back in, 19, you know, 2019. Or I hope I'm making good choices. <laughs> well, who do you think you've played for them that has had a particular effect? Well, I know, like, I'm a huge Joe Jackson fan. Okay. And uh, so I've taken them to see him i think three times um and my daughter will ask you know to hear specific songs and through a series of of facebook and other uh, situations i guess we've become friends with his his drummer his touring drummer now um and so my son has a great friendship with him where they you know they talk about drumming um that's great yeah so so i, I like that's definitely had an effect on them uh, in a in a in a great way, you know, and they're they're always excited to go and they want to see Doug after the show. 
so it's fun you know it's it's a lot of fun um and he took us i think it was two years ago he also plays with suzanne vega okay so um she was at the city winery in in dc and he invited us to the show and he gave my son a drum lesson it was really like above and beyond you know um but he's just such a great guy that uh Having that friendship with him really helps. I think my my son appreciate being a musician. If that makes sense. Sure, especially you know when you get to meet somebody and like yeah. it gives you their time and you know you know their story and see their yeah. successes. Yeah, he's a neat guy. I, he was actually one of the first people that I interviewed for this podcast. Um, and again, it was a, a meeting. You know, I, I met him backstage at a, at a festival and. We just sort of went from there. So what um, what made you start the podcast? Well, so we moved here. I always wanted to do it. I always wanted to be on air, and I never I, – I was lazy and never pursued that. It's my own fault. Um, and uh, and when we moved here, I, I couldn't get a job because I didn't have a green card. Uh, so I went on Amazon, and I found this kit for $100. That's right. I forgot you're from across the border. Yeah. Yeah. I can work now, but I, I've been going back and forth to Canada so often because uh, just my parents' health that no one would really want to hire me and, you know, allow me to leave for a week at a time every month. So, um, so yeah, I just, I figured I'm going to start talking to people who I think are interesting because I think everybody has an interesting story. Case in point, you and I talking and, um, and I've been lucky enough to, you know, reach out to people uh, either strangers uh, who become friends or friends who were strangers over uh, the years, and we've reconnected. I have, I have a, a my friend I told you who used to be curator at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's not there any longer, but he has great stories. I would love if you would send me his information. I would I love have, to talk to him. I will ask him. If I could do that. I think that you guys would would really hit it off well. He yeah. lives in Cleveland. I would love and to chat with him. Yeah, he's he's just a great, he's a very cool guy. And, you know, if you're ever interested in putting together a show, I could hook you up with Yaniv, the guy from The Voice of Peace. I think they're always open to having different people that want to do radio shows. Oh, sure. And and you just do it from your house, or do you go to a... Yeah, do it from my house. I have a studio. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was, it was the front hall closet. My husband, um, you know, set it up for me, soundproofed it for me. And it's perfect. It's just enough room in there for a table, a chair, a microphone, yeah, a few other odds and ends. And so I do voiceovers, too, okay. which I do a lot. Of. Like I just did one for um, there's a couple of studios in Israel that I work with. Okay. And I, I just did one for them the week before last. And um, you know when the midterm votes were going on last you know last fall or last summer, so I was able to do a lot of those. Okay. okay. And. Um, even if it's different as it changes, you know, now that I'm getting older, I'm not doing like, hey, everybody, come on down to I'm doing more like, um, do you need a warm and loving environment for your parents? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and I was really excited. I did an audition for the New York Public Library, and they oh. sent me a note two weeks ago that I was shortlisted. But I have a feeling two weeks have gone by, they, they probably have chosen somebody else. But I was so excited. You know, that would have been a great coup to oh, get yeah. that. I- well, when we're done with this, I'm going to go throw some money in the pushka and uh, and hope that it helps pay off for you for the New York Public Library. That's so sweet. <laughs> yeah, 
Okay, and I said to them, and I wrote them a note, I said, one of the best things would be, because my um, son is learning in New York, so when he comes to the library and puts on the headphones, if he's going for a tour, he'd have to hear his mother's voice. Hear his mother. That's good. <laughs> I, I had a friend who was a, uh, he was a producer, he was a voiceover guy, and he, this is before you could bring, you know, your own music, or when you listen to the music that was on the airplanes, and he was the voice on Air Canada. He was one of the DJs on one of the channels. And uh, I remember we were flying to Israel, and I popped my my headphones, and I was like, "Hey, that's Dan introducing the play the songs." That's that's such a cool. You know what I would love to do? I don't know if you remember. There used to be um, Allison Steele, the Nightbird, and she used to send out records, and it was her playing music, and she had like a theme for every show, and she'd talk about the music and all the background information, and oh, we'd wow. play it on the radio stations. It was a long yeah. time ago. She's since passed away, but. I remember her voice, you know, it was like velvet and it was, yeah. she's really someone to emulate. I would love it. There's two things in life that I would still like to do. One, I, because I've just recently become a grandmother and I'm also, my daughter's expecting her second child as well. Mazel Thank you. So exciting. I would love to be able to record um, Jewish fairy tales. Oh, yeah. So they'd be able to be preserved. Which is, of course, something you know, I could do on my own, but it would certainly be nice if there was a way to make it somehow profitable. Yeah. yeah. Or like they have um, PJ Library, which right. my daughter, that's what she does. She works with the Jewish Federation in Atlanta, and she oversees PJ Library, um, Birthright, and Next Gen, Next Generation. Okay. And so PJ Library, they'll send out a book every month you know, to any Jewish kid that signs up for it. Yeah, no, my, that was one of the things my father did for all of his grandchildren when they were born. Oh, sign them up for PJ Library? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. wonderful. And I guess that's one thing I could do is I could call them. I could say, you know, pick out which books you've loved the most over the years, and I'll record them, and then they'll have them as recordings. I guess that's something that I could do. Yeah. Uh, but I would love to be able to have a show. I mean, I can do this, of course, on The Voice of Peace, you know, a lot of, you know, sometimes I'll pick a certain theme, you know, whether it's Fourth of July or Halloween or Yom Ma'ut, or once I did a show that was all, you know that song, To Love Somebody by the Bee Gees? Yeah. yeah. So I just took like 20 different versions of that song by different artists. Oh. And then that was the cool thing of my friend Howard. I told him I was doing this. He said, oh, you have to play blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I just found that. I'd never even heard of that guy. How did you know that? It's so obscure. Because he knows the most obscure information about rock and roll. He actually used to do a show that was... Um, like the Antique Road Show, it was the Rock and Roll Road Show. Okay. And he would go on the road, and people would bring their rock and roll memorabilia. And he was able to describe it, talk to them about it, let them know their value and the history behind it. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, he's just a cool guy, Howard. He's a really cool guy. Um, so that would be such a great thing, to be able to have you know, somebody who would market, and I would have the ability, or maybe me and a couple of other people, to fill that niche that it was... Like we used to hear back in the seventies, you know, an hour of the doors, and then we have right. the background on the doors. Yeah, that see that was something that like radio in the seventies and eighties had, and then I found like once formatting came in, all of that got thrown out the door. Right, because we used to be, um, at one hundred five FM in Flint, we had um, oh, what was the name of it? Michaels. And they were the big programming company, and so everything was very. You know, they they would get angry if you if you skipped through the cards, and you're supposed to take the next one in rotation. You're not supposed to skip ahead ten 
10 yeah. cards yeah. to pick one out. So everything was very heavily formatted. When you uh, went from one job to another at a different station, would you would it take you a while to say the right call letters? Um, I think the only time it was confusing was when I was in college, so I was probably 19, and I was going to Michigan State, so I was living in Lansing. And okay. Lansing and Flint are about an hour apart from each other. So from Lansing, I would drive to Flint, and I did – 6 o'clock to midnight on Saturday nights, and then I would drive back to Lansing and do 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., then drive back to Flint, do noon to 6 on Sundays, drive back to Lansing and do the Sunday night six-pack, which was playing six albums in a row from midnight till 6 a.m. So I think the worst thing I ever did, I don't recall if, I probably messed up the call letters at least once because I was working at two stations, but I was really conscious of it, so I probably did it less than, you know, I would have if I wasn't paying attention to it. But right. I put on an album once, and I thought, all right, I'm just going to close my eyes. I'm so tired. And the next thing I know, the police are knocking at the door because the album had ended, and it's just going, <laughs> and there were some people listening at 3 o'clock in the morning, and they called the police to make sure I was okay. Okay. And shortly after that, I left for Israel, so I didn't have to face my viewers, <laughs> listeners again. <laughs> That, you know what? That's I, I want to go out on that story. I'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna end it there. Okay. <laughs> that was a a great ending, Shelley. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. It was my it was my pleasure. It was really fun to be able to do that and bring up some old memories and talk about things. Yeah, I love talking. Well, they're just the best. I, look for those articles um, from the Voice of Peace with the photographs. And uh, okay, I'm thank sure that you. I have it on somewhere, and I'll send it to you. Do, All right. Should I send it to you through Facebook, or do you want to send me your email address, and I'll send you um, an email? I'll send you my email address. I'll message you through Facebook. Okay, great. And if you want to send me your home address, I'll send the album to your little girl. Thank you so much. Okay. That's All lovely. Right. It was such a pleasure to meet you. It was a pleasure talking to you and meeting you. Take care. Uh, be well. You and I'll on the bar mitzvah. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I want to thank her again, Shelley Sherman. Um, full disclosure, I did, after the interview, go downstairs and put some money in the Tzedakah Pushka box, uh, hoping that, uh, you know, she gets that job at the New York Public Library. And I am going to contact uh, her friend Howard, who she told me to talk to, about uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, because I think that might be a good interview. Got some questions I'd like to ask him. And uh, I am uh, going to talk to the other guy about, you know, getting a job in radio, because uh, I want a job. Because I get kind of bored sitting around here. Anyway, um, I appreciate every one of you who are listening and who have listened and who will continue to listen. It's, uh, again, thevoiceofpeace.co.il. That's where you can hear Shelly and others. Maybe me one day. Um, and um, I want to thank you for listening. Too Lazy, Too Right is the podcast. The number two, the word lazy. The number two, the word right. I am the real John Baker. At the real John Baker on Twitter. Uh, that's no H. Uh, in Baker and in John and uh, that's on Twitter Facebook if we're friends we're friends if not hit me up and we'll become friends and um, that's about all until next time I'm going to uh, sign off the way I used to like the show on uh, on the uh, on the voice of peace when you know a little heavenly shades of night are falling it's twilight time out of the mist the voices calling it's twilight time each day i pray for evening just to be with you together my dear at twilight time talk to you soon
Hey.